Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you for downloading the CapEx podcast. I'm Alice Denby, Deputy Editor of CapEx. How do we really live now? From a Romanian truck driver to an Amazon delivery man and a factory production line worker, Ben Judah tried to answer that question by speaking to the people who make the freedom and prosperity the rest of us enjoy possible. For his latest book, This Is Europe. The author and Atlantic Council fellow crossed the continent conducting hours of painstaking interviews with people whose vivid stories reveal the powerful forces reshaping our world. Migration, technology, war, and climate change. He joined the CapEx podcast to discuss a book by turns harrowing and uplifting about a promise of unity, peace, and the good life that's realised for some in Europe, but painfully elusive for others. And as you might expect, our conversation was almost as wide-ranging as the land it covers. I hope you enjoy it. Ben, welcome to the CapEx podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, I read your book, This Is Europe, on a beach in Italy and, um, and sort of lying there on my sun lounger, the contrast between the Europe I was experiencing and the lives of some of the people you spoke to in this book could not have been more stark. The impression that I got from your book was that the kind of the prosperity and the peace that we enjoy in Europe can kind of floats above or almost depends upon the suffering and the labor of others. Is that how you see it? Well, the reason I wanted to write this book is it's very common to say that Europe's a museum, and that's a particularly common view in the United States, as if nothing really ever happens here in this continent. And I kind of felt through my travels across the continent that really couldn't be further from the truth, that we had these major revolutions that were changing the very fabric of our lives in Europe. And those were immigration, which is changing not only every city but also huge amounts of agricultural communities across Europe. That was, you know, long unfolding a revolution in supply chains that meant that behind every product, we just reach around now and sort of touch some of the things in front of us and imagine how the hell they got here. You know, that was really changing everyday life. There was climate, which meant that the very conditions and the seasons that we're used to as Europeans were increasingly being whacked out of kilter and that really started to accelerate in the last few days. There's technology and how technology is really changing every interaction, every experience, every love affair, every communication is now in some way touched by the algorithm. And the last one 
is war. Not only the war in Ukraine, that's obviously had a very big impact on Europe, but the war in Syria, which has had a big transformation, not the least demographically, on Europe in the last few years. So I really wanted to kind of break people out of this idea that Europe is a museum. As far as I'm aware, there's no war in the North American continent. I feel very strongly we live in a particular moment in history where we don't have very many weak ties with the people around us. And we know much less than our parents at a young age or our grandparents or great-grandparents did about the sort of people around us and what jobs they're doing and where they sit and what kind of lives they have. And that's all because of the sort of revolutions that I mentioned. And I think that, you know, traveling around Europe today can be an experience, whether you're on the beach, whether you're on the plane, of not really knowing who's around you. Like, who is the person that brings you the cocktail, the person that you see tidying your your room, delivering you the food on the plane? Like, just who are these people? I feel that we don't know that. So I wanted to write a book that tried to answer that question that I had of who are the people around me, what are the lives around me, and how are all their lives being changed by these revolutions? Yeah, I think one of the things that's so interesting about your book is that you explore these huge themes, as you say, immigration, climate change, war, but through the lives of individual and fascinating people who have amazing stories to tell. I feel like we should do them some justice and then talk about some of the individuals. I mean, one of the stories that I found most, well, it's just really stayed with me because it's just so harrowing, is the story of Brico. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about him. You know, I'll tell you a little bit about one of the principles behind the book, which is I grew up loving travel writing and like sort of all of us, I love that kind of generation of like Farouk, Naipaul, etc, etc. I actually wrote 50,000 words of a book in that style and I decided I just, I hate this. And I hated the sort of arrogance of the voice of the travel writer, which was my voice and it was sort of boring. I sort of thought it was useless. Like what's the point of me describing Rome to you or Athens to you? Not only have you seen it in an age of mass tourism, like the amount of people who visit Venice a day is just absolutely astronomical compared to the time when Naipaul or Farouk could sort of write sort of commentary about it, or Jan Jan Morris was conjuring it up. You know, we just see it endlessly bombarded through social media or through kind of little clips. So I felt the need for a narrator as guide just felt really sort of sort of outdated. And I wanted to make a very conscious break with travel writing and with these techniques of writing about Europe. And I was really very fed up about the way we write about Europe. We write about Europe in this country really in sort of two ways. There's the Europe of the mind, and that is, especially in Britain, composed of summer holiday memories, smell of coffee, stained glass windows, and that's really become very distant from modern, the lived uh, Europe. Or we write about like the Europe of politics, the Europe of Draghi and Emmanuel Macron, the Europe of a political system, the Europe of Brexit. And again, that's got really not very much to do with the Europe as we kind of live it. You know, one of the moments that I decided, okay, this is the book I want to write, is I decided in order to like inoculate myself against only being able to see the Europe of the mind and the Europe of politics, I would take part of the migrant journey myself. And I crossed the Alps you know, in winter with a group of African migrants and smugglers who were trying to sort of leave Italy where they were supposed to stay because that's where they claimed asylum to gain France, which for them was a promised land as they were coming from West Africa and they spoke French. They had this harrowing sort of journey over the mountains, through the snow. At one point I found myself carrying a sort of young child on my, my shoulders through the passes of sort of Hannibal and Napoleon. And the next day I met Brico. And he was a gentleman from Africa who'd done this long, harrowing journey across the Sahara all the way to reaching France. And I was one of the first people he'd spoken to when he 
we got this. He spent a whole day like telling me his whole story. And what was so harrowing about it is that he had lost his wife and daughter on the journey. He only had his young son left. And, you know, I was so touched by how he was sort of telling me, you know, the son you know, still didn't cry for his mother. The son still didn't cry for his mother. That he had no idea where she was because they'd sold their phones on the journey through the Sahara to make ends meet. And he will probably never find her again. I know the book isn't really about policy, it's about experience. But I mean, we're sitting here in, in the offices of the Centre for Policy Studies. And just listening to Brico's story, did it influence your thinking about Europe's approach to illegal immigration and people smuggling? Because I felt, for me anyway, just to read an individual story like that, mm. it's impossible not to feel compassion, especially for his child. But then again, you know, we're faced with the forces that are driving this immigration. It leaves you the question of, of what you can do. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. We are in the Centre for Policy Studies, and I actually work as a think tanker myself. So I work at the Atlantic Council. And a lot of people have gone to me, we know you as a foreign policy commentator and as somebody who writes reports about how to deal with kind of anti-money laundering and stuff like that. Why have you written a book without a narrator only from the point of view of you know, all these very, very different Europeans from a Syrian refugee becomes a porn star to a Belarusian family that has to flee uh, to safety, to an Amazon delivery man, to a kind of young couple struggling with fertility in, in Istanbul. It's really easy to forget when we work in policy the great political philosophies, you know, liberalism, conservatism, socialism, they're actually all a question about how shall we live? What is the good way to live? And the only answer to the good way to live is to actually think in terms of politics. Like, what do we actually want society to be like? And not to get lost in policy. So all of the people in the book, don't really like calling them characters. They're kind of real people and they're sort of doing real things. I don't really like sort of calling them subjects. makes you sound like a scientist. I don't really like that. It's all the people in the book, you know, they think that the story that happened to them says something really important about how Europe has changed and how the fabric of life has changed. And they, they're asking themselves, is this the way we want to live now? That's the subtitle of the book. So it's really, you know, it's a book that's asking a moral question, which is, is this the way we want to live now? And one of those questions which we need to ask ourselves as Europeans is, you know, there are these two great quests for freedom which are reshaping Europe. One of them is this quest for freedom from the South, of people like Brico, coming mostly from West Africa. And it's actually often driven by the fact that there has been quite a bit of development, which means that they have phones, they're exposing them to a dream machine about how life can be. They're working, you know, lower middle class jobs, they're dreaming of better, and that place of better is, is Europe. So there's a quest for freedom that's taking people from the South. And then there are these great wars for freedom, which are taking place in Ukraine, but also this sort of patter of failed revolutions. You know, the most recent one is in Belarus, and in a sense, the kind of protests in Russia, which I covered in, you know, 2011 and 2012, when I was spending a lot of, a lot of time there, were a failed revolution. Each of them has led to huge emigration waves to Europe. So, you know, last year we had 4 million refugees that left, you know, Ukraine to come to the EU. We had a million people claim asylum coming from the South. So those are these sort of quests for freedom. And something that made me actually kind of think about, you know, this particular dark night where I found myself carrying this child on, on my shoulders as her father was unable to continue and asked me, can you hold my daughter? It's reminding me a bit of Hegel. One of the most interesting things about the German philosopher Hegel is that he sort of believed that sort of history is freedom becoming conscious of itself, that each step of history is people and society realising the possibility to be free and these quests for freedom were reshaping Europe. And it reminded me of the moment where he saw Napoleon leaving Jena, a sort of German university town, and he went, I saw the Weltgeist on horseback, I saw the spirit of the world 
Unfortunately, he mistook Napoleon for freedom, which you and I and the Duke of Wellington might, might disagree with. There's a lot, a lot of things on Napoleon, but Hegel, I actually felt that when I was crossing the, you know, the, the mountains with that little girl on my shoulders that had the spirit of the world on my shoulders, this quest for freedom. So I think the moral question of that chapter about Bricot is, are we comfortable? Is this the way we want to live, where we have this zone of freedom and prosperity and it is defended by literally paying for North African states to police the Sahara to trap them. And a lot of Bricot's story is about how he is subjected to these horrendous conditions in these camps where he's captured, you know, where his wife is abducted, where he has to escape what is, you know, for all intents and purposes, a prison camp to stop migrants coming off. And that's all paid for by sort of European states. So that's a sort of a moral question for us. I think worth saying that he's also subjected to terrible treatment by the people smugglers that he's paying. But I guess there are real points of light and hope in your book as well. So that kind of promise of freedom and um, living your life as you might choose is something that some of the subjects of your book realise. So there's uh, Haidar. He comes over from Syria on a student visa and he kind of discovers himself as a drag queen. And it's such an uplifting story. So I suppose your book is about a promise of Europe that is realised for some and elusive to others. I'm really kind of sat down and committed to write the book and not just report it. I've reported tons of books that I've never been able to write and articles I've never been able to write. But I committed to sit down and write it in the first lockdown when I was sort of in quarantine at my parents-in-law's uh, house. And like a lot of people then, I'd sort of ordered books about the plagues. I, one of the books I'd ordered was The Decameron. And you know that's a book where in a castle, you know, a group of people have gathered to tell stories about their lives and lives at that time. And I was very inspired by that. And I thought, I want to create a book about contemporary Europe where I'm gathering into this symbolic castle of the book, all kinds of different people who can tell a different story. And I've always been very inspired by the sort of Jewish principles in the Talmud, that great kind of library of ancient texts. And it's a very strange, beautiful thing. And you can only really understand it if you study it with a rabbi. And even then, it's very hard. But the principle in it is... You know, as you read, there'll be one rabbi that will say one thing, another will interject and go, I completely different, disagree. A third one will go, no, you have to look at it like that. Someone will say a folktale, someone will give a legalistic ruling. And the principle is you actually have to look at something from all kinds of different ways in order to understand it. And it's only out of that divergence of views that we get any sense of reality. So you just take Berlin. You know, Berlin, you know, is such a fascinating and important place, especially to our generation as Europeans. And in a very different way than it was for our parents and grandparents, uh, of course. And I wanted to look at it in two ways. So the first way we see Berlin is through uh, the eyes of Aboud. And Aboud is a refugee from Syria. He's been kind of resettled into a kind of small town outside Berlin where he's sort of the only one. His wife's extremely depressed and is, you know, often kind of basically catatonic in bed, unable to get up. And he's working for Amazon. And the way that, you know, things are sort of shaken out for him, he's working as a black market Amazon driver, sort of exploited by sort of Turkish sort of mafiosi, really, that are running this. He hates Berlin. Like for him, he's found himself trapped in the soft authoritarianism of the app. He can't dither for more than 15 minutes, take the wrong route without the app bleeping at him. He's been pushed into this sort of criminalized underclass that's exploited by a sort of, you know, white German laptop class that doesn't even know it exists and doesn't want to know it exists. And he's dreaming of leaving. And he thinks that his wife will finally be better if they can leave and they can make it to Dubai. And at least there's order in Dubai. So we see Berlin like that. And then we see Berlin from the eyes of Haidar. And Haidar is a kind of gay man from Syria. He comes to Berlin on a student visa. And the way he sees Berlin is this landscape of really joy and self-discovery and freedom as he discovers himself as 
a gay man and a queer dancer and eventually starts performing drag and finds herself performing with a drag queen who happens to be born in Israel. And this wonderful, you're exactly right, it is the promise of freedom. When is it actualized? When is it not? And it would be stupid to say that Europe is one thing. A lot of what the book is saying is we've got to look at it from all kinds of different perspectives. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. One thing that's notably absent from the book is Brexit. I wonder if you had particular reason for that or if it was just not the kind of politics you wanted to talk about in this book. Well, two things which are absent from the book. One is Brexit and a British character. And the other is a Jewish character. People ask me, and that's because I'm British and Jewish. Mm. So my, my book, I've put it together, is British and Jewish in all kinds of ways. And I felt that that was enough to yeah. for. But, you know, I think the book is not about the Europe of politics. And, you know, it's not about Draghi doing financial calculations to get to whatever it takes. It's not about Macron and his European political community. It's about the lived Europe. It's about what does it feel to be in Europe now? What does it feel like to be young, to grow old and to die in Europe today? But there are two chapters there which I think kind of challenge leave and remain sort of mindsets, I think at this point would be the right way to describe them. The first one which challenges, I think, a remain mindset is the point of view of Yonut. So Yonut's a Romanian truck driver, divorced dad, you know, shuttling across Europe, delivering packages. And what is the single market? The single market is trade. What is trade? Well, ultimately, it's like men in trucks lives in this grey motorway world of like storage bays and sort of bleeping, reversing trucks in front of him, go endlessly forward and back to kind of Britain and Rotterdam. And for him, Europe is this landscape of exploitation and moral hypocrisy. And all he wants 
is he really wants to go back to go back and live in the, the village where he lived as a young boy, where at least the air was sweeter. And he thinks that Europe is, you know, the European economy is basically built off people like him, like exploited Eastern European, cheap labor, which is posted around Europe and then told, you're in France, you're in Germany, oh well, the deal of the European Union is you're paid the wage as if you were still in Transylvania. So I think that's quite challenging for a sort of remain mindset. But one of the chapters I think is quite challenging for a leave mindset and you know, one of the things that can be a problem with the leave mindset is you only see Europe as a political Europe. You only see it as the, a legal system. Is you know one of, as fact, it's one of my kind of favourite stories. It's for the story of Cezanne and Andy. They are meet on Erasmus in Amsterdam. She's a kind of aspiring lawyer from Turkey. He's uh, from Austria. And then an interesting kind of reversal of the normal immigrant story. They go to live in Istanbul, where she's from, and. You know, they struggle and eventually have a family. And for them, Europe is this landscape of transnational cultural exchange and freedom and the ability to shape your yourself. I think that that, especially since we are, of course, no longer in the Erasmus scheme, it's not really been replaced in any meaningful way. I think that is quite challenging to a sort of leave mindset at this point. I think that also brings me on to a question about your process as a writer, because as you say, that story of Cezanne. It's a really sweet love story, but it also touches on her struggles with fertility. I just wondered how you go about writing something like that, you know, with your subjects. You do you have direct quotes from them, but you're also kind of ventriloquizing them. You're sort of how much do you kind of interpolate yourself and your own language into these very, very intimate narratives? I'm very inspired actually. Kind of when I was a teenager, I sort of wanted to be a, a sort of I didn't want to be a painter. But I really wasn't good enough, unfortunately. And I was very inspired by portraiture. And the thing about portraiture is that both to the viewer and to the subject, a portrait has to be that person. It can't not be that person. It has to be instantly recognizable. Oh my God, that is me. There's no way around it in the way that if you're interviewing somebody for a newspaper article, or you're writing a profile, the subject can think, well, that's not me. I don't recognize as others. Portraits got tighter constraints. And I always thought that's an incredibly powerful thing to kind of operate in constraints. And one of my kind of favorite paintings is the Duke of Wellington being painted by Goya when he arrived in Madrid. Goya sits him down, he paints him in exactly the regalia he wants and exactly the way he looks. And there's just something about the eyes where is it that he's captured him still being this sort of young man from Dublin that can't quite believe this is happening to him? Or is that the haunted look of a man that's fought too many battles and can't look in somebody else's eye, but he catches it nevertheless? So the process that I've developed is like this. I you know, meet somebody, we decide, I'd like to make your portrait. And the way it goes is like this. I spend a day, a week, usually about a week with you. We record everything, we transcribe everything. And then I say, I'm going to go away and I'm going to write it up like a short story from your point of view with quotes. And then I bring it back to them. And then we sit down together and we go, is that how it looks? So that's how you get the intimacy. So say with that chapter with Suzanne, I went to Istanbul, spent a long time with her telling me all of her story. I then went away and wrote stuff and then we went over it you know, multiple times together. So one of the things I try and do, again, operating in that constraints, is I try and keep as closely as possible to somebody, the pattern of somebody's story. What's her beginning, middle and end? What's she seeing? And the reason it's not in all indirect sort of quote, so to speak, is that's actually, actually not, not really readable. So I use this kind of, you know, almost like a short story, the standards of a style of a, of a novelist, because that I think has been used for hundreds of years because that creates the greatest intimacy. How much sort of fact checking do you go through? Because obviously some of these 
or is it very much this is their story? This is it's kind their of story. reportage. It's the way it's presented is they're telling you what happened to them. And I go for it again and again and again with them in order to get their story across. But they're not really talking about, you know, politics or any specific kind of things, you know, so that's how I've done it. You know, in terms of, you know, what I did in order to make sure I got the best possible kind of portraits of them is I went back, I would write it, do one version, and we come back a couple of months later, we'd sort of do it again, we'd do another interview, sort of touch up the portrait. And then, of course, I kind of, you know, checked around it was possible around this, was that route kind of operating at that point? And, you know, there are 23 stories in the book. I didn't sit down with 23 people. I sat down maybe over 100 people. So there is obviously a process of editorialising in how you choose the individuals, how which stories make it into the book, which make it out. That's, I suppose, where your editorialising comes in. I mean, what, what were your sort of almost criteria for choosing who makes it into the book and who doesn't? There are a couple of architectures in the book because the book is about how we live now. How do we live in Europe? And I wanted to write my sort of megalomania speaking. I wanted to write a book that had not only all of Europe in it, but has sort of everything in it about what it is to be a human being on that arc of life. So the first architecture is the arc of life. Like we have all of the phases of life. I don't want to get too Shakespearean. It's like the seven ages of man. We have teenagehood. We have you know, young love, we have motherhood, fatherhood, we have grieving for a parent, we have being a parent, and we have really being on your facing death, being in palliative care, as we call it today. So that's one architecture. There's a journey through life. Then there's a physical journey through Europe, circle Europe. We enter it through various different ways. We crisscross it by truck, then we circle it by boat. So there's a physical journey through Europe there. And then there's a journey up and down through the sort of class ladder and then across through Europe's sort of racial and ethnic divisions or splits. And then it was very important to me that the book be 50-50 in terms of gender and have also Europe's sexual diversity in it. So once you've decided to do that and started filling in this enormous puzzle, I actually didn't really have that much room for manoeuvre. I was thinking, oh my God, I've got to find somebody in Scandinavia reading for a parent who is a woman and who is (laughs) aged about 60. Yeah. So it's like a gallery. And like once I'd kind of painted one picture, I was sort of forced to kind of find ones to fit it in. Yeah, I was operating in, in constraints. You know, there are more migrants in the book, I think the demographic percentage of Europe would suggest, and that's because I wanted it to be about the Europe that's becoming, the new Europe, the new ways that we live. Because there's really, I get quite tired and quite bored of people talking about Europe as the past, Europe as memoir, and Europe as 1989 or, or whatever. I really wanted to capture you know, what I felt was changed. So that did lead to there being more stories that linked to the great themes of the last few years. And those themes are the war in Syria, the war in Ukraine, the climate change, and how technology is playing with our lives and the complexity of supply lines. And of course, COVID, there are COVID stories in that. If you have one thing you want people to take away from the book, I know it's, as you say, it's so varied and it contains all of human life, but I suppose the overwhelming sense I felt reading it, albeit where there's some extremely uplifting and wonderful stories, was a sense of guilt that these people are just, that you don't think about them, right? And that the Europe that you or I experience is so different and their Europe is so hidden from us. If there's something you want your readers to take from it, or if there's a change you would like this book to kind of precipitate, what would it be? I'd like them to ask themselves, is this the way I want to live now? That's what I want people to ask. I want them to listen to all these different stories from all these very different points of view, really question, is this the way we want to live now? Is this how we want our cities to be? Is this how we want our technology to be? Is this how we want our climate to be? I want them to sort of recognise that we are in a very new Europe. We don't live in a museum, even if 
American TikTokers might say. So we really, really don't. It's about empathy. And I think the role of writers and you know novelists and journalists really can help people people see. I think that it's not anybody's fault that we don't know who our neighbours are anymore and we don't know who delivers the package or, or where they come from. There are huge forces there that are part of a world where the technology companies are determined to encase us in kind of you know, Apple VR glasses or, or whatever. And I just wanted to write something that would help people empathize and help people see, help people feel that humanity. I wanted to write about Europe in a way that would help, especially British readers, get out of thinking about it uniquely as a series of abstractions of a year in Provence slash the European Single Markets Act or whatever. You talk about the kind of enormous forces of change that are shaping Europe and you explore them a lot in your book. How optimistic do you feel about the future? Well, that's an interesting question. I haven't actually asked myself that. Apologize, the answer isn't as fluent as uh, some of the other ones. People ask me, you wrote a book about London. Why did you write a book about Europe? And what's the connection between the two? And actually, London, counterintuitively, makes me optimistic about Europe. Because London, really, since the time of Shakespeare, has always been at the Europe city of the future. The way that it's Europe's city of the future today is that it's Europe's most diverse, like most you know, racially and culturally sort of integrated and, you know, economically successful hub still, and despite all the problems of Brexit or whatnot. And if everywhere I kind of travelled, you see cities that weren't like London very recently, you know, Berlin or even Warsaw or Rome that's changing in that direction, if the whole continent, you know, by the end of our lives is like London is today, that makes me optimistic. And I, I am optimistic about you know, Gen Zs and uh, millennials and about, you know, really younger people and their capacity for kind of tolerance and, and empathy to live in a multicultural, you know, a multicultural, even sort of post-culture technological society together. The things that I am more pessimistic about are what are going to be the sort of moral costs of that Europe. And I feel that Europe in the 20th century was defined by a wall going down the middle of it. Europe in the 21st century is going to be defined by walls going around it. And I think those walls are going to be, you know, bloody and painful. I think we're going to be forced to ask a lot of very serious questions again and again and again of like in Europe of what's more important to us, our universalist human rights heritage or our kind of identity heritage. One thing that I think is probably inevitable is, you know, Europe has a lot of ways a Jewish past and a, a Muslim future. I think as Europe changes culturally in the Middle East, secularizes. I think there are a lot of forces that are going to push Europe and the Arab world into much closer cooperation. And one of those is migration. The other one is climate. Like You simply can't manage any of these processes without much deeper relationships with the North African regimes and uh, well, the North African regimes. So I think in the long run, we're going to see that kind of political blurring not formally in the institutions of the EU, but maybe we've got to observe the statuses and, and stuff like that. Because, you know, right the way through kind of North Africa, there's a lot of very anti-immigrant sentiment and there's a lot of desire for Europe to sort of help them deal with those migration waves. I think that's one of the ways that we're being kind of pushed in the future. Thanks so much for talking to me. Really recommend the book, This Is Europe, available in all good bookshops. Thanks very much for talking to us. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.